Well, evening. How's everybody tonight? I want to invite you to open up to Jeremiah. We're going to be in Jeremiah 25 tonight as we uh, take a look at what the Lord has for us. As we do, and as we uh, uh, begin to consider the things going on in our world, I don't know, you guys uh, are noticing things are a little sideways. Anybody notice that? There's a certain amount of crazy going on in the world. I thought, oh, you know, there's COVID, and then there's murder hornets, and then there's riots, and then there's COVID again. And then there's autonomous free zones in Seattle. And then there's SCOTUS. You guys know what that is, right? Supreme Court of the United States. They made some decisions this past week that I think are going to um, create some issues for us. And it all ties into Jeremiah, so I love how current events does that. So Robert Gagnon, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he wrote an article. I'm just going to share just a couple of sentences out of it. You guys look it up. You guys can can read, he does a synopsis on their decision. But uh, here's, here's probably the, the most pertinent point that he brings out. The logic of making sexual orientation and gender identity protected federal civil rights uh, categories the same as race and sex uh, will be uh, a major problem. In the eyes of the federal government, you, as a Christian, are now a hateful, ignorant bigot whose liberties must be attenuated and suppressed in the same way as skinheads, Nazis, and the Ku Klux Klan. So because of, that's all assuming as a believer you stand on what the Word of God says. So that's going to put us in direct uh, conflict with government at some point. Oh, it may not be tomorrow. They're busy right now. And it may not be the, the day after or the next day, but it's going to come. The same things happened in Canada beforehand, and now in Canada, certain sections of the Bible would be illegal to read from a pulpit, which will make uh, tax free status that the church has enjoyed for a long time, probably going to go away at some point, which is okay with me, but, but um, you know, there's things, freedoms that we've enjoyed that are now going to be on the chopping block because of that decision. When you probably didn't think it was that big of a deal, but you got COVID to worry about and Riots in 21 cities around the nation and uh, a autonomous zone in Seattle, 10 hours away. And nobody really knows what to do with it all. But the Lord, through his prophets, was dealing with very similar things in Judah. And prior to that, Isaiah was dealing with it in Israel. And so, as we look at Jeremiah 25, God has 
a plan. Now, I know sometimes that disappoints us to hear that. Usually we're going through something hard, something difficult, and someone will say, well, God has a plan. And maybe that doesn't bring a lot of comfort to you. But all things in history are moving toward a conclusion. Now, I don't know when the conclusion is. I don't know if it's tomorrow, this week, next month, years from now. I don't know. But I know that all history is moving toward a conclusion from the fall of man until the return of Jesus Christ. And so as we look on the horizon, there are things that God's word lays out for us that dictate to us what things are going to look like in the last days. And uh, it's funny because those things seem to be growing clearer uh, in our world today. So he begins, as we look at Jeremiah 25, talking about the refusal of the people to hear the word of God, hear the voice of the prophet. Listen, it says, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So he's dating it for us. Basically, we're looking around 605 B.C. Babylon comes on the scene. They're going to be the world power for, this would be important, roughly 70 years. That's, that's going to play into tonight. Um, in that year, the king, Napopolassar, dies, and his son, you guys know his name, right? Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to take over the throne of Babylon. And so it says in verse 2, which Jeremiah the, the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this word is something that has been going on. Jeremiah has been sharing. He's going to tell us for the past 23 years. So, so at the time of this prophecy, he's been sharing this word of judgment from God for 23 years. And for 23 years, the people have shunned him or turned a deaf ear toward him. And the call is to turn from evil. Look at verse 3. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. <clears throat> the rebellion within the heart of man will wax worse and worse to, to the end. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, when it's talking to us about the revealing of the Antichrist, a lot of people are asking those questions these days. Who's the Antichrist? Well, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that, that you won't know who he is until there is a apostasia. There will be a great falling away that takes place before he is revealed. And so that great apostasia, turning away from the faith, uh, uh, can be both turning a deaf ear to, to the gospel or people within the church finding out that persecution doesn't agree with them and they choose to turn away from what's going on. He says in verse 4, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants the prophets. And you remember when Jesus was talking, as he's entering into Jerusalem, you remember how he weeps over Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. 
If only you had known the things that make for your peace. He would tell parables about the vineyard, right? Describing the nation of Israel. And he would say about sending his servants, the prophets. And what did the people do to them? They kill them. They shun them. They arrest them. They throw them in a pit. Because there will come a day, Paul wrote in Timothy, when men will not endure sound doctrine. They don't want to hear the truth. They want to do what they want to do. And so it's time for mankind to grow beyond the archaic ideas of God. That's not new. We, we hear those words today, but they were doing it at the time of Judah. At the time of Jeremiah. In verse 5, he says, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil deeds, his evil way, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old forever. So he's saying, look, you, you don't have to be exiled. You don't have to enter into a time where you lose the blessings of having the land. But you need to change the road you're on. You need to get on to the path of life. You need to follow the highway of God. Isaiah talked about that. Make a highway so that people know the path to walk. And so the, the prophets would walk into Judah and into Israel 136 years earlier, and they would tell them, hey, you're on the wrong path. The path you're on leads to exile. The path you're on leads to judgment. You don't have to stay on this path. You can walk the path of life. Remember when the Lord stood before the people there as they were preparing to enter into the promised land, he sent priests on the two mountains, you remember? And one shouted the cursings. If you disobey what God has for you, these are the things that will happen. He's describing the road of the wicked. And then he asked priests on the other mountain, shout the blessings. And this is the path of life. So you have two paths set before you. That's what Moses told the people. You have two paths before you. Choose life. I have set before you life and death. Choose life. And so here you have Jeremiah. Same message. Message hadn't changed. Calling the people to take the path of life. Change the road you're on. But they don't want to listen. It's as though they put their fingers in their ears and, and are making noise so they can't hear. La, 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 la. Now, I know you think people don't really do that, do they? So a couple of years ago, I went down to Scottsdale, Arizona. We were doing an End Abortion Now conference in Scottsdale, Arizona. And at the end of the conference, we all went out to Planned Parenthood in Scottsdale where, believe it or not, the high priestess of the Church of Satan shows up, they have access to the parking lot. The believers can't. The only public space you can stand on is the sidewalk. If you step in the parking lot, they will cite you for uh, trespassing and ticket you. Call the police and try to get you removed. So we stay on the sidewalks. And as people drive into the driveway... We try to hand them brochures to let them know that there are alternatives to coming in for an abortion. While we do that, Antifa, 
the guys in the black pajamas, you see them on TV now, they, they were not so prominent back then, they would stand between us and the car. If we bumped into Antifa, they would cry assault and call the police and try to get you removed. The high priestess and her people from the, the temple of Satan in Scottsdale were the descorts. They're the ones who would take the young ladies out of the car and walk them into, the, uh, uh, into Planned Parenthood for abortion day. And as they are doing that, they have a big speaker they carry under their arm where they are listening to, in German, uh, someone reading Mein Kampf as loud as they could possibly play it. So that while we stand on the sidewalk and try to share the gospel with people who are walking in, they can't hear. That's just two years ago. You can go on YouTube just about any time you want and watch those events happen still today. And from before, I, every once in a while somebody says, what a giant waste of time, Jackie. That is so lame. I don't know what good it comes out of that. Uh, they have, to date, saved 400 babies in their time out there. Well, seems worth it. And many of those families are now a part of the church in Scottsdale because they plugged in. So thank God for people who will go, for people like the prophet Jeremiah who are still giving the message, but the people are putting their fingers in their ears. La, 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 right? I don't want to hear what you have to say. The message was, do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me, the Lord, to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. Just like the blessing and the cursing, life, death. If you walk the path of death, the result is judgment. What happens to someone who uh, rejects the gospel and they die lost? What happens to them? What does the Bible say? Yeah, they're instantly going to be standing before the judge, right? Judgment day. Condemnation. That's that road. That's where that road leads. So Jeremiah would stand and give his voice to a people who did not listen. In verse 7 he says, You have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. He's saying you're, you're making a choice that's leading to your own destruction. And God, because he loves them, is sending people to share with them the message. But the people are rejecting it. And so the results, therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Now, I want you to listen to what he said about Nebuchadnezzar. And I will send Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. What's the next two words? My servant. Well, that's interesting. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, I think Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith, at least what Daniel writes to us in Daniel chapter 4. 
and uh, you can come to your own conclusion as you search scripture. But, but either way, prior to that event happening, the Lord is saying, look, Nebuchadnezzar's my servant. He's accomplishing my purpose. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's doing what's in his heart. Conquer the world. Bring people to subjection, right? To, to ultimately, he's going to build the statue of gold, right? That everybody bows down to his image and worships. You remember? And so this is the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. His heart is to be wicked. God's going to use him and his choice to accomplish God's purpose. He says, he's my servant. He's the hand of judgment. Now, a little while later in the chapter, he's going to say, and I'm going to judge Nebuchadnezzar for what he does. Because Nebuchadnezzar chooses his path. Nebuchadnezzar walks the path that he walks before God. And so God says he will be responsible as well, as will every person within creation. They will all stand before holy God and give account. And either you are clothed in the blood of Christ and righteous, or you are not. Either you are clothed in the blood of Christ and righteous and your name is written where? In the Lamb's book of life or your name is not. If your name is written, then you are his redeemed, declared righteous by the judge because of the blood of Jesus Christ. But if not, the message judgment lays out, turn hear the the gospel message in turn. Now, their time, they're looking forward in time to Messiah. In our time, we look back to Messiah. But salvation was the same either way. So here's what he says. Verse 10, moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones, and the light of the lamp. The idea is all the things, all the parties, all the joy you're experiencing is going to go away. It will evaporate. Now that sounds pretty, or should sound pretty familiar, because in Revelation chapter 18, which we find ourselves coming to the close of what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, It says in verse 22 of Revelation 18, and the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will not be found in you anymore, nor the sound of the mill will be heard in you anymore, nor the light of the lamp will shine in you no more, nor the voice of the bridegroom or the bride be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by your Sorcery. So when we look at the judgment, looking forward to the culmination of history, right, moving toward the return of the king, you have the same message. Under God's judgment, there is the loss of joy, but in God's presence is what? Fullness of joy. Two paths laid before man. Now he says, he's going to lay out for him the length of the captivity. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon. What's he say? Seventy years. You know how long the kingdom of Babylon lasts? Seventy years. Crazy. From 
from Nebuchadnezzar to the conquering of the Medo-Persian Empire, the coming of Cyrus, which Isaiah prophesied 136 years before the exile began. 70 years after that, so 206 years before Cyrus is going to rule, Isaiah, through the word of the Lord, says, God says, I will send Cyrus, my servant, to set my people free. The exile will end under Cyrus. And it's interesting because here in Jeremiah, you're reading that the exile is going to last 70 years. And if you flip over to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is going to say at the end of the period of time that Babylon reigned during Darius the Mede, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, Daniel 9.1, excuse me, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet that must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel, who was taken in the beginning, roughly 605, Daniel's taken in the first part of the exile, and he's going to serve Nebuchadnezzar all the way through. He's going to serve Nebuchadnezzar's son. He's going to serve Darius the Mede. He's going to see Cyrus come. All of these things Daniel will see. He says, when the Medes were ruling, so now Babylon will have ceased at the time of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel says, I perceive that the 70 years had come to a close. And so in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel begins to pray. Lord, forgive us and let us go back to the land. And so the children of Israel go back. They are able to go back to what God had for them. So the Lord laid out. What's the length? The length of the exile will be 70 years. The idea is a generation, right? 70 years. One generation will perish in exile, and then a new generation will come back into the land. Those who are born in the land, just think about this. Those who are born in the land, Zerubbabel, Joshua, those who are going to come back and build the, the next temple, they never saw the temple. Never saw it. They never saw Jerusalem. Now, by the time they go back, Jerusalem's rubble. It's a pile of rocks. And they begin, you can read about it, Nezra and Nehemiah, they begin the process of rebuilding the temple and rebuilding the city. So as the Lord lays out the ideas behind these things and the things that are going on uh, for, for Judah in this judgment, he's also going to talk about how he's going to also hold Babylon accountable. In verse 12, it says, Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. Now, what do you know? He just a moment ago said that Nebuchadnezzar was his servant, but he didn't use his name here. Why? Because Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be king then, right? You remember the story. We read about it in Daniel. They take the implements from the temple and they're partying. Remember a hand shows up? Many, many tekel you farsin. You have been weighed and found wanting. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that night, it happens. 
So the Lord says, look, I'm going to hold the king of Babylon accountable. I will punish the king and that nation in the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity. <clears throat> They're guilty of the same things Israel is. That was why Israel had such problems. Lord, why would you use a pagan to judge us? Why would you use someone as wicked as us to be the, the tool, the implement of your judgment? And God says, well, ultimately, according to John chapter 3, when Jesus is sitting down with uh, Nicodemus, it's Nick at night. You guys remember the story? Nicodemus comes to the Lord and he says, I have some questions for you. And in John chapter 3, the Lord says, well, I didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved because the world is already condemned. And how is the world already condemned? Jesus is going to say, because light has come. God has revealed himself to the world. Romans chapter 1 says that all men are accountable to God because what can be known of God, God has shown them. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. All men are accountable to the light that God has given. To the light that God has shown them. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. John chapter 3, Jesus said, this is the condemnation that light has dawned, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. And that word for love is agapeo, that men agape the dark. The Bible says God so agaped the world. He had a self-sacrificing love for the world. But men want to stay in the darkness because they have a self-sacrificing love of the dark. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Two roads. So when Jesus comes and he brings the message to the people, what does he tell his disciples? What's the first thing he tells them is, come, follow me. Because he's going to show them what? The road of life. I have come to give you life, and life how? More abundantly. Come, follow me. So they're going to be judged. Babylon will be judged. And the name Babylon, guys, from the time all the way back to Genesis, I want to say Genesis 11, Genesis, that when we talk about the Tower of Babel in the land of Chaldea, we have Babylon, which becomes a symbol from Genesis through Revelation. Babylon becomes a symbol of mankind in rebellion against God. If you look at Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, Revelation chapter 18, you see the judgment of a false religious system, and you see the judgment of a false or a wicked economic or governmental system, and both of those are called what? Babylon. Babylon the great is fallen is fallen. When you got some time, take a look at it. The rebellion of man. Man in rebellion against God, they are pictured, illustrated as Babylon. And man in submission to God is described as Jerusalem. City of peace, city of rebellion. Path of death, path of life. 
So we see these things laid out. Now the Lord goes on to tell us, I will bring upon that land, in verse 13 of Jeremiah, all the words that I have uttered against it. Everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. Now you're going to see the prophet lift up his head because there are things that are focused in on Babylon and the Medo-Persian and the Greek and the Roman Empire. But if you remember the vision of Daniel, it's important for our understanding of prophecy because Daniel begins with the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the statue, head of gold, chest of silver, body of bronze, right? We have the decline of man till you get to iron, iron mixed with clay, feet of clay. And what's the point? Babylonian kingdom lasted how long? 70 years, roughly. I mean, Napopolosser ruled for a period of time, but I'm talking as a world kingdom, they lasted 70 years. That's not very long. When you get down to iron, Rome, Rome's going to rule much longer, aren't they? Yeah, they're going to rule much longer, but they both come to the same conclusion. What's the conclusion of the kingdom of men? They are always perishing. If you turn on the news, you are watching our perishing now. You are watching us begin to eat ourselves from the inside out. <laughs> We're beginning to tear apart our own nation. Because what? The kingdom of man has feet of clay. But the next part of the vision, a stone from the heavens, not cut out with hands, strikes the statue on the feet, destroys the statue. All of the kingdoms of men will one day be destroyed and replaced with what? It says that stone grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. It becomes the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God. And who, what king are we waiting to return? Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ, the return of the king. And so the prophecies of Jeremiah, he's going to lift up and he's going to look beyond just their time into this progression of the kingdoms of men failing and the looking for, the longing for the coming of the kingdom of God. Because Isaiah chapter 11 says, what's going to happen when the kingdom of God comes? The wolf will lay down with the lamb. Well, we usually say that different, huh? What do we, we usually say the lion lays down with the lamb, but that's not in the Bible. Sorry. The lion is in the Bible, and the lamb is in the Bible. They just don't lay down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The child will play by the adder's den. So a child, you can leave a child, a toddler, playing by the den of rattlesnakes and not have to worry about it. Why? Because the king's here. The curse is lifted. All the things that, that causes fear and consternation today, the war between man and beast, between chaos and calm, all those things will be gone. The little child will stick his hand into the hole for the cobra. They don't have to worry about it. They won't have to worry about it because the king will have returned. So now he's going to lift up his eyes. Verse 14, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them. So the Chaldeans will be made slaves of. Who's going to make slaves of them? The Medo-Persians. Are the Medo-Persians going to be slaves? Yep. Who's going to make slaves of them? Alexander the Great, the Greeks. And the Greeks, somebody going to make slaves of them? Yeah, there's this other guy called Rome. Rome's going to make, you know slavery is not new, right? 
Despite what crazy senators might want to say, the United States did not invent slavery. Slavery has been a part of the human condition almost from the beginning. As soon as one person conquered another, there was slaves. And so each one who at one time was great becomes small. I was great, become small. I was great, become small. The prophet looking at the history of mankind on the, on the, on the landscape. So many nations, they will, they will become slaves even of them, and I will re- recompense them according to their deeds. I will, I will repay. What, what did Scripture say? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Who's the judge? God. He's it. He's it. So he goes on in verse 15. Now listen to this. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. All the nations, in fact, all of mankind must drink this cup or or be covered by someone else who did. You remember a prayer from the Garden of Gatshmone? The cup of the, of, of the wine of the wrath of God? He says in verse 16, they will drink it and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and I made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me, drink it. So this is what we call a sign act where Jeremiah would do a sign like Ezekiel or Isaiah and he would walk around with this cup and he'd have someone drink it and he'd say, this is for this nation because God says you will drink of the cup of the wine of my wrath. This is part of the curse. But We read in Matthew 26 that Jesus took his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And taking Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, how's it go? Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, as you will. That's the cup of judgment. That's the cup of the wrath of God. Why is it that Paul would write that you and I as believers are not appointed unto wrath? We're not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he drank my cup. He bore my judgment, my punishment. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5.21, write, he who knew no sin became my sin sacrifice so that I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus covers me with his righteousness, not because I suddenly become righteous. I blink, I make a wish, and I've become righteous, but he covers me with his righteousness. He drank my cup. So I'm not appointed unto wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The world was condemned already. Jesus Christ came to save her. And so here, 
the Lord is saying. Everyone's going to drink. Every nation is going to drink of this cup. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation, a waste, a hissing, a curse, as it is to this day. At the time Jeremiah is penned down and put on paper, you have Jerusalem destroyed. Until 1948, it was a pile of rubble. Even coming back from the exile, it was never that great. They struggled all along, Nehemiah and Ezra. That's the last of the chronology of the, of the history of Israel. You know that. If you read the Bible from Genesis and you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, you have finished the history of Israel. Everything else is prophets. That's the end. And they began to have this problem. You know, they were having this problem during the 400 silent years. There was this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. You guys have heard of him, right? Daniel wrote about him. And Antiochus, every time he passed by Israel, he wanted to conquer it. And so Israel, in their, in their wisdom, was looking for someone to help them out. Man, we need somebody. We need a nation who can help us out. So they reached out with ambassadors to a young nation called Rome. And Rome came, conquered Greece, and stayed in Israel until the Christ came. So the people were ready to be set free. Set me free, set me free. But Jesus didn't come to set us free from our false political systems that can never save he came to set us free from our sin. He came to set us free from the bondage of man, the thing that poisons man, the thing that causes all these problems in the first place. But man rejects that salvation. They reject the word of the Lord and they continue in their rebellion. And you turn on the news and you see the results. That's a world worshiping a false god. And so God says in verse 19, he's started with Jerusalem and Judah. I'm told you he's looking out over all the nations throughout time. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, all his people, the mixed tribes among them, all the kings of the land of Uz and all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the sons of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, oh, Dan, Daniel talks about them too, by the way. Uh, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Booz, and all who cut the corners of their hair. They must have had funny haircuts. All the kings of Arabia and all the kings of the mixed tribes who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. So when we read Revelation 17 and 18, what are we reading? The fall of who? Babylon. Babylon will fall. The, that status of the last bastion of rebellion against God. 
it will fall. After all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them the king of Babylon, he will drink. And then you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you, the cup of the wrath of God. The last judgments in Revelation are called the bowls of wrath, right? The bowls of wrath that are poured out on the world. Seven bowls. He says they're all going to drink. When you read about Babylon in uh, Revelation 17 and 18, what is she drunk on? She's got a cup full of the blood of the martyrs. You remember? She's drunk on the blood of the martyrs, wiping out the believers, abolishing them. He says, oh man, look at this. She's drunk. She's vomiting. She's fallen and will rise no more. Because of the sword I am sending. And if they refuse to drink the cup from your hand, then you will say, the Lord of hosts says, you shall drink. Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies. It's as though God puts on his general cap, the captain of the Lord's army. You remember him? When they say they don't have to drink, let me put this hat on. The general of God's army says, you're going to drink. There's no way off the path of wickedness save the blood of Jesus Christ. It puts us in the path of life. Otherwise, you will drink this cup. For behold, I begin to work a disaster at the city that is called by my name. And shall you go unpunished? Judgment begins in the house of God. God starts his judgment there with his people. But he says, if I judge my people, you don't think I'll judge you? You don't think the wicked will be judged? You remember Asaph was having a hard time with life, and he's looking around at life. He's, he wrote the Psalms, some of the Psalms. And so Asaph, he says, man, I was having a hard time because the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. And then I went into the temple, into the house of God, and I saw their end. Well, the wicked may not suffer now, but there will be a day. God will judge the wicked. They will face their punishment. You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. How many people is that? Yeah, that should cover them all, right? declares the Lord of hosts. You therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation, utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold. Shout like those who tread grapes. That reminds us of another prophecy, you know? Treading the grapes of wrath. Yeah, when Jesus returns, He's going to march from Basra to Jerusalem and they will say to him because he's covered with what looks like grape juice and they'll say, where have you come from? And he will say, I was treading the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God alone. Revelation 19 says he returns and his vesture is dipped in blood. 
the idea or the picture of the judgment of the wicked. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. Everyone is guilty. He is entering into judgment with all flesh. How much flesh? All flesh. And the wicked he will put to the sword, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, bring disaster, or I'm sorry, behold, disaster is going forth from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. And those pierced by the Lord on that day shall extend from one end of the earth to the other. And they shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon, they say there are two feasts that mankind can be a part of, kind of like two paths. One is the feast of the great God. If you remember at the, at the battle of Armageddon, the Lord will call all the carnivorous birds of the earth to come for the feast of the great God. There's another feast though. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. One is rejoicing because we have become the bride of Christ. And the other is wailing and mourning because we have rejected salvation. And we stand in judgment. We stand drinking to the full the cup of the wine of the wrath of God. Verse 34, he says, Wail, you shepherds, and cry out. Roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you will fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste to their pasture. The shepherds and the lords of the flock were synonymous terms for the leaders of of people, the leaders of the people. God's going to say, you know, everybody sounds sure and confident until they stand before the captain of the Lord's army, until they stand before a holy God and recognize what the Bible said, that we are men who are condemned that God has provided for. You don't have to stay condemned. But we're men who by nature will choose the path of wickedness. But then light, the light of Christ dawns. The word of God comes. It shines light on us. And men are drawn either to the light or to the darkness. Scripture tells us that the Lord draws men. And so we come from the darkness into the light. We bow the knee. We receive the gift of the gospel of grace by faith. Jesus Christ cleanses us. And then what do we do? We go back into the dark to tell people to shine light, right? To shine light from those who are perishing. Jesus, when he left, what did he say? Go into all the nations and do what? Make disciples of all people. Go to those who are in the dark and shine the light so that they can come. Nobody has to be destroyed. But those who are will have chosen rebellion against God over following him. 
this is, this is the, if there is a thing, this is the heartbreak of God. What else? What, what more would you want him to do? The way is made, able, everything provided, even the power to do what God is asking them to do. Verse 37, he says, And the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Like a lion, he has left his lair, for the land has become a waste because of the sword of the oppressor and because of his fierce anger. Jesus Christ, he came, the Bible says, John the Baptist looked at him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. But the Bible says the next time he comes, he is the what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The return of the king. The Bible says that an angel will put his feet on earth and drive a standard into the ground and declare that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his anointed one, the Christ. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and he will rule it again. And we can look at a world just like Judah's that we're in today where man is in rebellion against God and disobedient to God and not willing to hear the words of God. And we can be filled with despair and we can say, what good does it do? Or we can cry out, oh, come for me, Lord Jesus, and pray that the rapture comes before we would ever have to suffer. And maybe it will. But Jesus said, you have a job to do. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now, because you do it doesn't mean they'll love you. Right? You, maybe you guys know the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. They call it Chaz. An open-air street preacher went there. And many people, I know a lot of guys who have said, man, we need to go take the gospel there, man. And and share the gospel. And so an open-air preacher went from, I don't know if he's associated with Jeremiah Cries or somebody else, but usually an open-air preacher goes, stands on a corner, reads scripture to the people as they're passing by on a speaker, speaking in a little, little speaker he can carry under his arm. So the first thing they did was beat him and take away his speaker. But that didn't stop him. So he got back up and continued to preach. So then they beat him, sexually assaulted him, drug him out of the city and threw him outside. That's the life of the prophet, right? Jesus didn't say, when I send you out, they're going to welcome you with open arms and they're going to love you and they're going to take care of you. He said, I'm sending you out as sheep, among, oh, that's kind of how that sounds, isn't it? The political climate of our world is shifting, and so we're going to find ourselves looked upon with derision. Uh, there's a certain amount of that now, isn't there? I'm always afraid to tell people what I do for a living. Well, what do you do for a living? Huh. When, when we were 
first starting the the motorcycle ministry, we went to Brother Speed to just do the the appropriate thing and tell them, hey, we're going to patch up and we've got some plans to minister to bikers in the area. And, you know, you like it or lump it, doesn't matter. But I walk up and in their clubhouse, they have this big bar. And so they're offering us drinks. And so the guy on the other side, he says, hey, what do you do? <laughs> Man, I could, I might as well have said I'm a leper. I said, I'm a preacher. And I did that. You never seen somebody move so fast in all your life to get away from me. There will be a sense of derision, right? Because our nation may have been founded on Christian principles, but this is not a Christian nation. Don't fool yourself. And it is progressing rapidly into being antagonistic toward it. And I don't say this to cause you fear or consternation. I say this so that you might be prepared. We still have a job to do. There's a world out there perishing in the dark. Keith Green said, the church just can't fight because she's asleep in the light. It's time for us to wake up. Seems like Paul said that in Romans, didn't he? It's high time for us to awake out of sleep, to throw off the, the eyes, the slumbering eyes, and to walk into the darkness carrying the light of the Lord and share the truth. People always ask me, Rich got to experience it Sunday. You know, you preach a message, and everybody always likes to get positive feedback, right? I'm sure you guys would like positive feedback too. Everybody likes it. But um, I always tell people, I give people the same advice. When you share the word, don't hang on the receipt of the people. Because sometimes they'll carry you on their shoulders like a hero. And sometimes they'll throw you in a pit like they did Jeremiah. So how they received it's not the valuable part. The valuable part is this. Did you share what God gave you to share? Did you tell them what Jesus said to tell them? That's all we got to do. You don't save anybody, neither do I. Who saves them? Jesus does. All he asked me to do is what? Tell. Tell them. Go into the darkness. Shine the light. Who knows? Maybe this is not the beginning of the end. Maybe this is the beginning of the next revival. And we're about to see God move in amazing ways. The only way to find out is to go. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We can study this amazing book of Jeremiah. So apropos for our day. Lord, I pray, God, that you would give us eyes that see the need around us. Give us boldness. Lord, your disciples came together in Acts chapter 4 and they prayed. They prayed for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They prayed for the power that they needed so that they could stand in an antagonistic society and share the truth. And the scripture says that a rushing wind blew through the room. They heard it. They felt it. And the people were filled with boldness. God, may you bring boldness to your church. For we 
have the light and the world is in darkness. So may we draw them to you. Just like the disciples did, just like Andrew did with Peter, just like we see Philip doing, what do they do? Come see Jesus. I can't do nothing for you. I'm a wreck. But Jesus Christ, come see him. There's nobody, nothing on earth that can satisfy like he can. God, be glorified as we turn our eyes toward you in Jesus' name. Amen.